Welcome to the Food Issues Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Revelant, and I'm a journalist, healthcare copywriter, and a mom of two. In every episode, we talk about the challenges around feeding kids and give you practical and realistic solutions that will inspire and empower you to raise healthy eaters. Hi, friends. Welcome to another week of the podcast. Before I became a mom, I was really nervous about giving birth. And I remember my mom telling me, that's the easy part. Wait until you have to raise your child. I think like other parents, I thought, how hard could it be? And of course, it's the hardest job I've ever had and harder than I ever thought it would be. Like anything else in parenting, when it comes to feeding our kids, we often think the same way. Sometimes we bring in ideas and preconceived notions about food and meals and eating habits. Some of it comes from our own experiences in childhood or from family, friends, or social media, and we quickly realize what we think should work isn't working. And so if we want to raise healthy eaters, we need to be flexible and make some small adjustments and rethink our approach. So it's not just, it's time for me to feed my child. It's more, it's time for us to have a meal together. That's Paulina Skadron, a trauma-informed speech-language pathologist who specializes in autism, ADHD, language, and literacy. She's also a parent coach and nutrition educator. Paulina talks about the different types of pressure, how to consume with intent, and why environment and the words we use matter. She also talks about easy ways we can change our approach at mealtimes, her five food rules, which are really simple to follow, and how she got two-year-olds to eat Brussels sprouts for breakfast. There's a ton of information in this episode that will change a lot of what you thought about feeding your kids and help set them up for a healthy future. I know you're going to love this episode with Polina Skadron. Well, Polina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's talk about your story and your career path and what your work looks like today with clients. Sure. So. I started working in the special education field when I was an undergrad, and it wasn't something that I thought I was going to do. I was actually a finance major, and then I wound up just falling in love with the intricacies of just different types of therapies and chose the career path of speech and language pathology, and it has taken me through my undergrad career, through my master's degree, through schools and agencies. And then I found my way into private practice. Great. And so what is a trauma-informed speech-language pathologist? Because I think most people haven't heard of that. Yes. So I wound up getting trained and certified in trauma just because it was something that was so interesting to me. And I saw that there was an overlap with the mental health field and with the types of clients that kept coming to see me. And I just figured that I needed to educate myself even more to the point of becoming certified and continuing to uphold that certification. So it helps me really understand what goes on when a child has a meltdown in the brain and in the body. And it really helps guide my therapy and it helps guide my work with parents so that they use the same type of language at home and it really carries over throughout all environments. And so do you treat children with all types of trauma? Uh, So it's interesting because 
a lot of the children I see have are either on the autism spectrum or um, I have kids with ADHD. And the way that when you think about trauma, sometimes people think of, well, it has to be this huge catastrophic event, right? But not necessarily. And we'll also get into talking about how that impacts food and how it impacts eating. And it's more about how the child experiences the world, right? So if people around the child are really stressed and the environment is full of constant constant and toxic stressors, that can really, really impact the way that the brain develops. So we have a lot of influence on our kids' food choices, but sometimes I think, you know, I think most of us are guilty of of really using those those pressure tactics, right? It can it can be like, come on, just take another bite, or you have to finish your meal before you have dessert. And so what are the three different types of pressure when it comes to feeding kids? So these are the ones that I kind of named <laughs> and I put them into three categories. The first one I like to call it's deceivingly positive. So they are hidden. And these are praises of like, oh, you're doing such a great job eating. And we go, oh, well, that's actually pressure or um, reminders. That's also like a deceivingly positive pressure. Any type of reward system is also pressure. And my favorite is a bribe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, uh, the bribe is also seen as, you know, parents fall into this trap of thinking that, well, I'll just let them know that something something better is coming later. And then that backfires because then food is not on an even playing field. That what you're actually telling the child is what you're having now isn't as great. What you're going to get later is even better. Yeah, I think a cool way to think about it is if you were the one who was eating and someone was sitting next to you coaching you, right? Saying, come on, just take another bite. Or you, if you eat that, you'll have dessert. And it just seems so absurd to us. But as, as parents, we think that it's just sort of normal. And, and do, you, do you know where that kind of idea comes from? So it, I, I love that question. And this is where I bring my nutrition education uh, background and degree into it also, where I really learned how important the family environment is, and the fact that all participants in the meal bring their own food history with them. So it's not just when I devise a meal and a mealtime environment for families, we're not just talking about the child. I tell them, I was like, eating comes later. We're focused on what kind of, what is your own food history as the parent? What is your partner's food history? And how are you bringing those expectations to the table? Because you take all of that and you bring it with you. And then it impacts this little person that you're also trying to trying to feed. So, and that, it's, we forget sometimes how important not just the environment is, but the way that we think about food and how we bring those thoughts to the meal itself. Yeah, yeah. It's like anything else in parenting, right? We have we bring in these um, experiences and ideas about how we're going to raise our kids and how things should be. And and I guess sometimes we just kind of screw it up. And that's and it happens. And that's why, you know, there's also like that positive pressure. Um, the, the ones that are most alarming, I call it alarmingly negative pressure. And those could be actually really dangerous because that's when 
parents restrict extremely. And um, especially with, with what research shows, especially for girls with severe restrictions come more of an attachment to certain foods later on in development. Uh, and that's something we want to be really, really careful with. Um, and then comes like shaming a child for not finishing something on their plate or criticizing them for eating too much or not eating enough. And that goes into a whole other realm of how kids start thinking about themselves and the relationship that they have with food, which it just goes beyond the plate. It goes beyond beyond dinner time and lunchtime. And it really seeps into their everyday lives. Right. And so you talk about the importance of consuming with intent. Can you explain what that means? Yes. So I love telling parents the this idea of, well, when your child is hungry, right, as, as an infant, you start to understand and learn their cues. And then you also understand and learn their cues for satiety. So as they grow older, we also have to remember to respect those cues. So when kids and especially in toddlers, this is where I get that that kind of inquiry uh, a lot when it comes to toddlers, their appetite is going to decrease naturally because their growth decreases. And it's going to go up and down from meal to meal, from day to day. And if we push beyond their satiety cues, what we are telling them as, or what parents are saying is, I know your body better than you do. And you're letting me know that you're full and I think I know better. And I've asked that question to parents. I said, well, how do you know that he's still hungry? And then they look and they go, well, shouldn't he be? Right. <laughs> and I said, I don't, I don't know his body. So we look at the plate and, and that's the intent. It's I'm going to look at my food. I'm going to know exactly what's in it, exactly how much of it I'm consuming. And then when I'm starting to feel satiated, I know that I'm going to just stop. And you could tell when kids start to slow down, that's the cue for parents of going, oh, I think it looks like the mealtime is ending instead of saying, like you mentioned, let's sneak in one more. Well, well, what's one more? Let's let let's clear the rest of this plate. But they're done. Right. And so what are some other mistakes that we tend to make when we're feeding our kids? Uh, so the the my um my good parenting type of pressure leads into this mistake, which is when parents tend to hide vegetables in other foods and to mask the flavor of the vegetable. Um, and it does not, it doesn't even have to be a vegetable. It's hiding foods in other foods. So it's, well, he won't know, or she won't know that it's in there. And I said, right. And then when it's time to actually choose it, then, and the child looks at a menu, they go, oh, there's spinach in that smoothie. I'm not having that. I don't eat spinach. And the parents like, what do you mean? I put spinach in your smoothie all the time, but the child has never seen it. Um, and then the other mistake is also goes hand in hand with the good parenting type of pressure. It's warning the child about being hungry later. So those warnings about hunger, it's, it's like, well, I'm being a good parent. I'm letting them know that, well, if you don't finish this now, you're going to be hungry later. And I go, great. They're going to feel what it's like to feel a little hungry. And and then when they and the parents tell me, but in five minutes, they ask for food. And I said, right. And this leads into you going, oh, 
thanks for letting me know you're hungry. Here's some water. We're going to eat again, you know, at this at this point in time. And the phrasing really depends on how old the child is. And this is, again, like for, for typically, more so for typically developing kids and um, either for, for kids who I see who are not typically developing, we still don't warn them the fact that they're going to be hungry later. It's and, and this is where we schedule meals and snacks so that it doesn't look like the child is either grazing all day or you're being chased with food all day. Yeah. Yeah. And talking about, you know, you're talking about sneaking foods in. Do you find that some parents will try to distract their kids to eat their meals by putting them in front of the TV or an iPad, something Definitely. like that? I've seen that also. And um, I like to ask parents to go cold turkey on that. And they get really scared and they look at me, they go, but how am I going to get my child to eat if he knows what he's eating? And I said, right, that's the intent. And that's the point. The point is that I want them to look at their plate and go, oh, this is what's on it. Oh, these are the people around me. This is what mealtime is supposed to be like. Instead of I want to get as much quantity in them. And then and then the parents said, and then they could play with the food later. And I said, right. But that's the whole idea. The whole process is, okay, they don't want to use a spoon. Great. I had a child this morning, take a little spoon, toss it on the floor, and with his whole hand, go for the yogurt. And we went, all right, sounds great. (laughs) Go for it. And what about the words that we use? Do they matter when we're talking to our kids about food and meals? All the time. And I think with my, the fact that I have a background in, in language and I also understand the way that the brain interprets language. The words that we choose, I want to say even matter more so, right? So a lot of the times when parents first come come to me, they go, well, I tell my child this food is yummy. And I said, okay, where's that in the grocery aisle? And they say, what do you mean? I said, well, where's yummy located? When you go to the grocery store and you look at the aisles, where is yummy? And I said, right, it doesn't exist. So to you, something might be yummy, but that doesn't really say anything to the child. So what, how else can we talk about food? So we look at the property, right? Like, oh, this is wet. Oh, you're right. It is. That one's sticky. Yeah, it is sticky. My hand is sticky too. Or this one's crunchy. Do you hear that? I could crunch it also, right? So we start focusing on the main properties of the food. And it's not to say that we can never say, oh my gosh, this tastes so good. Of course we can. Um, but then the child knows what, what that's like for them. And especially if they're trying something new and they like they make a face, we go, oh, like that was a really big flavor instead of right away going, that was yuck. <laughs> what really is our role as parents when we're feeding our kids? No, that's a really great question. And that information I actually really lean toward the Ellen Satter model. It's a Satter division of responsibility where there are clear designated roles for parents providing the what, right? So like what the food is, they're also providing the where. 
So where food is served, and this is when we focus on food stays at the table. Okay. If the child wants to wants to leave the table, great. The food just stays at the table so that we're not falling into this constant cycle of, well, now we're running after the child and trying to get take the food out of their hands and we don't want them to choke and it's safety. And I go, well, actually, for me, it's more the food stays at the table. You could come back if you'd like. You could leave if you'd like. And it's more of we're not just running around and chasing them, right? So the parents are really responsible for what's being served, where it's being served, and then when it's being served. And that goes into the fact that meals and snacks really need to be scheduled because then our brain and our our gut really they adjust to the, when the schedule when the scheduled meals come. And then the child has their own roles and responsibilities. So whatever is being served, the child is responsible for deciding whether or not they're going to have what's being served. And if they are, how much of it? So that the what parents what tends to happen is that sometimes the roles get reversed. And that's when parents start having a real, a real hard time where now we're offering 10 different things and the child just keeps going, nope, 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 nope. Give me something else. Mm-hmm. And then parents become, I don't know if you've heard the phrase, like a short order cook. Um, and that's what parents become. And then they go, well, I just want to offer them something. And I said, right, of course, there's always a food that your child is going to enjoy that, especially when it comes to like feeding therapy, that kind of safe food is going to be available. Uh, We're not going to make it something that the child has to work for because that even saying it out loud sounds a little ridiculous. Like, what do you mean I have to work for my food? I'm I'm hungry. (laughs) It should be here. Um, And then we, the way that I offer food is also like very strategically. Uh, I like for parents to give me a three-day food log just so that I see what's being consumed and then I look at the the timing of the meals, and sometimes it's as as easy of a shift as going, "Oh, you see these two meals? They're really, really close together. Let's space them out maybe another half hour, and that way um, you could see that. Let Let's test out those those times and see if now your child is hungry because it actually looks like the previous meal was so filling. That then and the next one on top of that was too close together that they they're actually not hungry and now everybody's frustrated because the parent the parent thinks well they're supposed to eat why aren't they and that's because they're full <laughs> still from the meal that they had before yeah yeah they should definitely come to meals hungry well this is all amazing so we're gonna take a break and when we get back we're gonna talk about the strategies that you use with your clients to help them eat healthy. If you want mealtimes to be easier and less stressful, getting your kids in the kitchen is one of the best things you can do. I know that it's really encouraged my kids to eat their vegetables and try new foods, and it's given them a ton of confidence in the kitchen. But if you don't know how to cook or you don't like to cook, the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. This course was created by a mom of four and former elementary school teacher, and it's designed to build connection, confidence, and creativity in the kitchen. With Kids Cook Real Food, you'll get more than 30 basic cooking skills, 45 videos, including a ton of bonuses, 
principal supply and grocery shopping lists, and kid-friendly recipes like Tex-Mex white bean dip and homemade pizza. The course is designed for all kids ages 2 to teen and has three different skill levels. Your kids will learn how to crack eggs, cook rice, make a salad, and safely use knives, the oven, and appliances. If your kids have food allergies or dietary restrictions, no problem because the course has a ton of substitutions. My kids and I have taken the course and it was so easy to follow along that they made an entire recipe on their own. More than 18,000 families have taken the course and the Wall Street Journal named it the number one cooking class for kids. You can sign up by going to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues. And because you're a listener, you'll get a free lesson. Again, go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues and sign up. We all know that kids love their snacks, but finding healthy snacks with real food ingredients that are also affordable isn't always easy. That's why I love Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online membership-based market that makes healthy living easy and affordable. Everything is organic and non-GMO, and members save an average of $32 on every order. My kids really love the skinny dip dark chocolate almonds and Lara bars, especially coconut cream pie. So delicious. Thrive Market also has essential groceries, safe supplements, non-toxic home products, and clean beauty products, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues where you can sign up and see my favorite items. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a family in need. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. All right, Paulina. So let's talk about the strategies that you use to help parents get their kids to eat better, healthier. Okay. So there's there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> um, when it comes to strategies, there isn't like a quick fix or that magic potion, right? Um, every family comes with their unique, unique, unique strengths, th- their unique challenges. So this is where we take in the entire family history, the whole environment. And then I tell parents, well, I don't tell them that this is coming from the social cognitive theory, but it is. <laughs> so um, the I use the constructs of Albert Bordura's social cognitive theory. And it's if you think about it as a triangle, uh, one of the really important constructs is something called reciprocal determinism. And it sounds really fancy. Um, but it's not. It says that the environment and your the actions, your your behavior in that environment, and then your you yourself as as a person, okay, they all interact. So the way that our it, our environment our environment interacts with us, we interact with the environment. Our environment signifies what kind of actions we're supposed to take. Our actions then bounce back to the environment and to the people in it. So then we go full circle. And when you when you explain that to parents, then they go, oh, so what I do during the meal matters? And we go, yes, what you do during the meal matters. So it's not just, it's time for me to feed my child. It's more, it's time for us to have a meal together. Here's my plate, here's yours, right? And then it's also important to know that 
the, the habits that you form as an adult, they are going to, if you're not aware of them, they're going to infiltrate the habits that then your child forms. So we have to be like really conscious and cognizant of like, how does our environment in, impact the actions that we take? How do those actions then go back and impact the environment that we construct? And then on top of that, how does that impact the person that our child becomes? So what would be a good example of this that where a parent could kind of interfere, I guess you'd say, right? So a, a really great example would be um, if the parent just sits and watches their child eat. Um, and then I've had that happen also where we, we set up the table at mealtime and I give a plate to the child and or the child gives a plate to the to the parent and I get a plate also. And then I notice that the parent's just sitting and waiting. And then I kind of turn the tables and I sit and I stare at the parent. And then they right away, they get really uncomfortable. And I go, what happened? I'm just watching you eat. And then I, I said, doesn't that feel good? And then they go, oh, that does not feel good. I said, right. So that's part of the environment that you're setting up. You're just waiting and watching for your child to eat. That brings up this feeling of anxiety. And when we become anxious, what actually happens is our digestive system shuts down because we become so stressed. And then look at that, we're not hungry anymore. Great. Yeah. I think a lot of parents um, tend, especially around the toddler age, they tend to feed their kids first and then eat as a couple later or by themselves later, right? Yes. Yes. And I've said that before. I said, even though they go, but our mealtimes don't match. And I said, that's okay. As long as you have something on your plate, something, the same thing that your child has, right? And the parent's like, but I don't eat what my child eats. And I go, oh, but there's no such thing as kid food and adult food. Food is just food. So if you want your child to eat what you're eating, then guess what? A spoonful of that mac and cheese is going on your plate too. Yeah. Or vice versa, right? If or you're vice versa. Yeah. <laughs> So how do our food choices impact the ways in which our bodies move? So I, I, I love this because I, I tell parents that I test this out on myself also. And this goes back into consuming with intent and being aware of what it is that we're eating. Um, for, for younger kids, when I've done uh, nutrition education lessons in schools, we talked about foods that um, are called go foods. And those are our like our fruits, our vegetables, um, like lean meats, things that are not out of a box. Right? And then we talk about our woe foods. And those are the ones that slow us down. Those are going to be the most processed type of foods. And then we say, well, guess what? There's a balance, right? There's a balance. And the way that I show it to kids is we play a little, we play a game of like woe and go. It's kind of like red light, green light mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit. So I have them take out like pictures of foods out of a hat randomly. And if they pick out a go food, they take three steps forward. And if they pick out a woe food, they take one step back so that they notice that, oh, sometimes, you know, sure, we can have a donut. But then if we continue to only having those processed foods, then the your your classmates or your peers who are consistently having go foods look at how far ahead they are from you and those woe foods really slow your body down so it's like teaching them in real time and showing them 
what foods really do to us. I love that. That sounds so practical and hands-on for kids to understand versus just talking about how food makes us feel, right? Yes. And kids are always, you know, they're on the go. They, they learn, they learn by doing. And if you show them that this is what's happening, and then you could talk about it when, when it comes to yourself and then they have to feel it also. Um, and I've said that to, to some adults too, uh, some things that are being served. And it's not that I'm saying I'm choosing not to eat that because of some kind of caloric restriction. I go, you know what? I'm going to choose not to have that today. And I've had the question asked, well, why? And I said, well, actually, I remember the last time I ate that in my body, I felt my joints hurt. And some adults look at me like, what do you mean? And I go, well, I felt the inflammation. I saw it in my hands. And I know that there's something in this dish that slows my body down because then after I eat it, all I want to do is take a nap. <laughs> it's great to, to talk about food in that way. And so you know, what, what are your best tips for how we can change our approach to feeding kids and, and really focus on raising healthy eaters? Uh, I, I love that question because it's about raising healthy eaters and also raising mindful eaters. Uh, and that's where those, the, the no distractions come into play at any meal time, whether they're electronic distractions or sometimes like kids bring toys to the table or they, they, they bring books to the table. It's the same thing, right? So it's still distracting from what the from what the food is, right? They want to listen to a story. Make the story with the food. Uh-huh. That's that's the star of the show. Um, so, and one of the biggest suggestions I make to parents is let your child participate in the prep process with you, right? Even if they're even if they're really young, they could still. And the parents go, well, I don't want them around sharp objects. I go, great. Do you wash your vegetables before you serve them? Yes. There you go. Perfect. They could they could have their own bowl. They could go to town. They could drop tomatoes in there, whatever it is you're washing. And then the language comes with comes with it. You wash, you scrub, you you dry it, you pat it, and you go, great. Thanks for helping. <laughs> and then the child goes on their way. Um I, I had a, a set of twins this morning. They're around age two. We made Brussels sprouts for breakfast um, in, in an air fryer. And what they did was I chose really big Brussels sprouts and I cut the top off and they peeled the leaves. Yeah. And we go, okay, here, here's one for you, one for you. Let's, let's peel the leaves off. And it was so interesting because they are, and I don't call kids picky eaters, they're quote unquote picky eaters. They started pulling the leaves off and then the leaves started going in their mouths. They just started trying <laughs> to figure out. And then as soon as we sprayed olive oil on them, oh, forget it. The, then the leaves started going in their mouths again. And then we made them crunchy and we had Brussels sprouts for breakfast, right? That's awesome. There's no such thing as kid food or adult food. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting them in the kitchen is so important. And so I read that you have food rules. So talk to me about those. So uh, I have five that I've come up with that I consider just really, really poignant. And the first one, and it's something that we mentioned as we were talking, is that food is just food. There's no such thing as good or bad because those, again, those categories don't exist. There's no such thing. Well, this is this is really good for you, and this is terrible. Or the two categories of healthy and unhealthy. Food is just food. 
And we want to really make sure that food is on an even playing field. So yes, sometimes we have a brownie for dessert and tonight we're having strawberries and the next night we're having something else, right? So that it's not, you know, you have to eat your string beans in order to get something else. Food is just food. We have string beans, we have a cookie. Sounds great, right? Because then we don't want the child to just look at that dessert and go, okay, I know this dessert is coming later. So I'm going to tell my parents that I'm full, right? And then I'm going to ask for that thing that's better. Instead of going, oh, uh, of course there's something that, that there's a dessert coming. I wonder what it is today. Oh, it's ice cream. Great. Sounds good. Right? So that it's more of like a matter of fact instead of whatever I'm getting later is something that I really want. And whatever I'm getting now, I'm going to finish it because my parents want me to, not because my body is telling me to. So that's one. And then the next one that's so important is that trust is key. I tell parents that all the time, like trust is key. If you break that trust, especially when it comes to food, you're going to work much harder to regain it. That's why I don't sneak foods in that the kids know exactly what's in it, exactly what's being served, how food goes from raw to cooked. And sometimes parents say, well, they they do it with you in therapy. They don't do it with me at home. And I said, right, not yet, because I started out with trust. And unfortunately, I say for you, you have to work a little bit harder to regain your the trust because you broke it. So trust is really, really key. Um, I ask for parents for meals and snacks to be scheduled, right? Because a snack is just a smaller meal. I don't know where we fell into this category of like snack foods. Snack is just a smaller meal. Anything could be a snack as long as it's a smaller meal than the actual meal, right? So meals and snacks are scheduled. Um, The next rule is that the environment is distraction and stress-free, right? So not just distraction-free, but it's distraction and stress-free, okay? Because no one really feels good when you're eating under pressure. Um, And then the last one that I think is also really important is that your expectations are developmentally appropriate, right? For your child's current state, not where you think they should be in a year, but in this present moment, your expectations are appropriate for what your child can handle during this meal. Now, how do you figure out what's developmentally appropriate? That's a, it's a great question. So um, I look at, I look at history. Um, I take, if kids are born premature, I take that into consideration because now we're not just looking at chronological age. We're looking at their adjusted age, right? Um, a two-year-old is not supposed to sit still for half an hour. That's way too long for them, right? So, um, and then everybody, every child has their own individual individual differences, right? Some kids start out with staying in one spot for two minutes and then they walk away and then they come back and the meal, but we also know when the meal, when the meal is, is over, right? So we have, like, I tell the parents, keep that like 30 minute mindset in mind and you'll see your kids also start to slow down a little bit, right? But it's not that they're walking away to go into the other room and like play with toys. No, they're kind of just stepping away from the table, walking around the table a little bit, looking at what other people are doing, and then coming back to their spot, right? So that's the kind of, for, you know, let's say a 13-year-old, right, for an adolescent, maybe that that's a different expectation. 
So that's what we have to keep in mind that where is this child functioning developmentally with all of their other skills, because it also impacts their mealtime. Great. And so you mentioned cooking with your kids. What are some other uh, food family activities that we could do with our kids? Um, Awesome. So going to the grocery store. I know that a of us don't really anymore and groceries get get delivered and that's okay too. Um, I remember asking parents like, well, where do you get your groceries? Um, and they said, Instacart. I said, great. Does your child unpack them when they come to the house? And they go, oh, that's an activity. I said, yes, because then all of a sudden this food winds up on his plate, but he has no idea how it got there. So unpacking, unpacking the bags of groceries, you know, you're not going to, again, you're not going to give a two-year-old a carton of eggs, but you can give him something that you're okay with them dropping and going, oh, you're right. That was heavy. Okay. Let's pick that up. Let's give that to mommy right, or to daddy. Let's put that in the fridge. Where can we find space in the refrigerator? Okay. And then they also learn that some things are really cold. They go in the freezer. Other, other foods go on the countertop. So it's a whole activity of unpacking groceries and putting them where they belong. And there are so many other skills that are associated with that. We could have a whole talk about how unpacking groceries is like a play therapy tool. That's great. Anything else? Um, so the, the cooking part is one of my other top ones, um, getting kids to use utensils like I have child safe knives um, at my at my office um, any type of participation that they could do whether it's mixing whether it's cutting um, whether it's putting salt on foods they sell these really tiny um, salt and pepper grinders so cute um, and I've and I've had kids use them so those are and again like we're teaching them skills as well right? It doesn't have to be this like grand grandiose activity. It's every and every time you you make a meal, and sometimes let's say even if like you overcook something, right? That's a great lesson in it too. It's like, oh, that burned. You're right. Look at that. We can make another. Like, let's make another batch. Let's do that again. Right. So those are just like my top top activities. Is definitely getting your kids in the kitchen. Um taking them either to the grocery store, helping like walking them through the aisles or putting them in the cart and having them unpack the foods, place them where they belong. And that way they're a constant participant in this is, this is what happens to food. This is where it comes from. You want to take your kids to an actual farm. Fantastic. Right. If you can't, and that's okay too. Okay. So as long as it's really interactive, and you are also an active participant in it, it's just going to add to their experience. Yeah, that's great. I love taking kids this time of year to, like you mentioned, the farm, but also farmer's markets or berry picking. It's such a fun activity and it gets them so excited about healthy food. It does. Yeah. Well, Paulina, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. Tell me where listeners can go to learn more about you and your work. Oh, sure. So I am on Instagram and it's at play to learn SLP. So that would be the best way for for them to learn about me. And through Instagram, they can access uh, my website and other social media platforms. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. 
I really love chatting with Paulina Skadron. Be sure to check out her website and follow her on Instagram, which I've linked to in the show notes. If you're enjoying Food Issues, I'd love it if you could just take 30 seconds and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode, and I'll see you next week.